I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to an Old Testament book. It's the book of Hosea. It's right after the book of Daniel. So just think, you know, you're moving these big Old Testament chunks, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. The next one is Hosea. Let's turn to the book of Hosea. Chapter 1. You know, I was thinking about people like C.S. Lewis. You know, Lewis actually, as an author... As actually a scholar, he studied literature. And many times you ask yourself the question, why are some books masterpieces? Why are they the classics? That's what he would study. And it's the ability of a writer to speak to the human condition. I I really believe that. To address the great themes of life, themes like love and war, suffering and death, to name just a few of the powerful themes of life. Conditions that have an impact on all of us. But what makes for an enduring work is that the author speaks truthfully of the human condition. And often these themes are wrapped in the cultural values of the artist's time. But what makes a masterpiece is that these issues are addressed truthfully and that, they're, that they literally transcend their cultural biases. Now, one of, you know, one of the great novelists of all time is a Russian writer by the name of Leo Tolstoy. Leo Tolstoy um, wrote in his classic work, Anna Karina, and it really deals with the issue of love and marriage. And it begins this way, that, you know, has the opening line in his novel, and it says, all happy families are alike, but each unhappy family is unhappy after its own fashion. It's an interesting statement. In other words, there's a lot of different ways to experience misery. You know, and I can say amen to this because I've been a pastor now for well over three decades and I've heard a lot of pain in my life, a lot of sorrow, a lot of different nuancing of problems in people's lives. The novel actually is contrasting the legitimate love and relationship found in one marriage versus the illicit relationship that develops between the, the protagonist in the story, Anna Karina, and a certain count. Now, book critic Donna Gower, in her critique of this novel, says this, In such a world, adultery represents a symbol of a perverted union based on passion rather than on loving commitment, a lawless and fleeting pseudo-marriage that destroys and undermines society even as it adversely affects the perpetrators. In other words... You know, there's a big difference between the stable institution of marriage where it's built on commitment and working through issues and this other relationship where there's this, you know, extreme passion that's driving this relationship. And as she goes on to say, the epigraph, which is the motto and inscription at the beginning of this novel, which is inscribed, vengeance is mine, I will repay, is a reminder of a moral law that ex- exacts its toll, beginning with Anna's contempt for her husband, Karenian, who she has entered into an adulterous affair and entering with her final bitterness towards her lover. Wow. And yet the biblical passage is also an admonition to avoid usurping God's place at the throne of judgment. You know, it's easy for us, you know, to know what's right and then condemn people when they do what's wrong. How many know that's easy to do? We can all do that. We can all see it. You know, one of the things I notice about human beings, we're really good at seeing what the problem is. We have a real difficult time knowing what to do with the problem and how to handle it in a correct manner. Anna, too, may receive mercy as well as justice in the divine scheme of redemption. In other words, even when we blow it, even when we mess up, even when we make sinful choices... Our God is a, rede- a God of redemption. He's a God that can forgive. He's a God that wants to reveal his grace and mercy in, in all of our lives. And there's not one person in this room that could say, I don't need God's grace. I don't need God's redemptive work in my life. You know, we're all engaged in life with all of its enchantments and all of its struggles, and we often wonder why life is so messy. Why does God allow these things to happen to me. You know, I I get this question a lot, you know. If God knows the future, why did God let me, you know, go into this situation knowing that the outcome would be pain? I've had that question asked me many times. 
And and it's really a a kind of a, a playoff of the question, why does God allow so much evil in our world? But we don't say it usually that way. We say, why does God let pain happen in my life? Why does God allow suffering to come into my life? Why does there have to be so much injustice, Pastor? So much hurt, so much pain. And, you know, it could be expressed this way. And this is a, a kind of a theodicy, a, a kind of an explanation. It's, you know, a lot of Christians try to build a defense for this question. You know, uh, if, if, if God um, is all-powerful and all-good, why does he not rid the world of evil? Right? Wouldn't that be nice? By the way, that's what we're moving towards. That, that's what heaven will be like. That's what this, the kingdom of God fully established in heaven and then eventually back to earth will be. There will be no sin. God will rid the world of evil. That's our hope. That's, that's the kingdom of God. That's what it's all about. But yet, even when we experience God's kingdom in our world and in our lives, God still has not totally eradicated all the evil around us nor has he eradicated all the evil within us because in a sense we have this this divine nature now as we became Christians, we receive this beautiful nature of God within us, but yet there's still something of the, the old nature, the sin nature. It still haunts us. It's still a part of our lives. And it's up to us now to yield to this new nature and overcome this sinful nature in our life. Derek Kidner in response to this powerful question, says, it's a question that many have asked. One of the things that Hosea does for us is to give us, with extraordinary frankness, the other side of that anomaly, God's side. And in the book of Hosea, we see things not in these simplistic terms where situations and people are uncomplicated and power is like a magic wand. Isn't isn't that kind of what we really want, all of our problems to go away? Like, you know, just kind of like say the right words, move the wand around, you know, abracadabra, poof, it's gone, you know. Isn't that kind of what people want? Yeah. You know, deliver, you know, you know and, and there's a sentiment even in the Psalms, when Psalms 55, he says, oh, that I had wings like a dove, and then I could fly away. You know, I want to flee from my current reality. And there have been moments in all of our lives that we have felt like that. I want to just escape, you know. Is there a way out? Hosea introduces us to a family which is a miniature of our world. But it is a problem family. And God compares his situation not to that of an autocrat whose orders nobody dares question, nor of a father whose children are like strangers in his own house and are fast destroying themselves. So where does omnipotence, where do instant solutions come into such a picture? Certainly, tame acceptance is no answer to it, but no more are strong-arm tactics unless one were content to have a slave wife. In other words, you know, what, what uh, Kidner is basically saying is God isn't up there, you know, like a, a monarch, an autocrat that's demanding, you know, a certain servitude of all of us human beings. No, God is looking for relationship. God is looking for intimacy with us. With relationship as subtle and sensitive as these are, no shortcuts to mending them when they go wrong, not even for God and his power. As a matter of fact, if we think that God could somehow wave that wand and solve the problem painlessly, if he really gave his mind to it, we have only to recall the cross, that hideous instrument of torture, and the son's prayer. My father, if it be possible for our answer. And, and what, what is Kidner saying? He's saying simply this, that when you and I see injustice and evil in our world, and we think it's just easy to disappear, we have to understand how God actually solved the problem of evil. He suffered for it. He died for it. He addressed it. He entered into the human equation. What this tells us is that for evil to be addressed, it must be addressed by love. That's the important equation that we're going to discover from this book called Hosea. And it comes at an incredible price. You see, what we need to understand is love is a very costly gift. 
You see, when we're young, we think of love as, you know, some sort of an infatuation, an emotion, an attraction to some other individual. But love is far more than that. It's more than just, you know, a family situation where a mother or father love their children. But what we need to understand is real love is very expensive. It costs somebody something to love. And God himself has demonstrated us love. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave. But how did he give? He gave up his son. And what did his son do? He laid down his life for us. That's the price of love. That's the lesson that Hosea is about to learn. That's the lesson that he's going to communicate to his people. He's going to begin to reveal to the nation of, of, of Israel. He's going to reveal to them the real heartbreak that God has experienced when his people have forsaken him. Isn't it interesting that God often, well, I don't say often, I think God just does use our human experiences to teach us about who he is and about what life is all about. We learn through human experience. And sometimes human experience, when you're experiencing it, you don't understand what you're experiencing. How many know what I'm talking about? It's actually after you've gone through the experiences and you look back in hindsight and you can look over it and begin to unpack what really happened back there. But during the hours that you're going through the sorrow, the suffering, the difficulty, the pain, you don't really grasp it. You wonder, you question, you long for. Where are you, God? What's happening in my life? Why is this going on? One thing we learn from the prophet Hosea is that God reveals much about himself through our own human experiences. And so here in the story, in this book, we find the tragedy of love gone seemingly wrong, of a defiled relationship, of betrayal, deception, anger, forgiveness. They're all revealed to Hosea through his own marriage. G. Campbell Morgan says it this way, this love of God was unveiled to Hosea through his own tragedy. Gomer, that's the name of his wife, had deceived him, had been unfaithful to him, had left him bereaved and his heart broken as she had gone after her false lovers. The historic story reveals the fact that her lovers had forsaken her and she had been reduced to the position of a slave. And while in that condition, Hosea now was commanded by God to seek her in order to gain her. And so he was told to go to the slave market and purchase her back. Wow, what a story. Isn't that an amazing story? It's compelling, I think. And what really is happening to Hosea is actually a metaphor. It's really revealing to us what's really happening to God in his relationship to humanity. And so God, instead of just giving us principles and ideas, and he actually lets us live it through story, the relationship that we have with him. And so we're going to take a look here today. Um, of how Hosea restores her, reunites and makes her his bride again. But this can only happen because she's been stripped of everything. She's been humbled and broken. In other words, true and healthy reconciliation can only come through repentance. That's a very important line. You should write that down. You know, because a lot of times we cannot find reconciliation because there's a lack of repentance. And repentance is a change of mind. A repentance is I'm beginning to see things differently than I once saw them. There's an openness to change. Here in chapter 1, we're introduced to the family situation. The marriage and the ensuing children and their names are actually speaking of the painful situation that Hosea is actually having revealed to him that God is experiencing with his own people. Hosea's ministry to the nation, which spans close to four decades, was a message of God's love betrayed by sinful choices. In this first chapter, we immediately discover the consequences of these choices. God reveals the message that Hosea was to deliver through his own painful family experience. And in chapter 1, we discover three aspects of Hosea's family dynamics that really reveal something of the nature of God to each of us. And the first one is simply the details of the relationship. 
The start of a love story between a man and a woman. In Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, it says, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery and departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Debalim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, it, it, you know, it's very interesting when you're reading these scholars, you know, they're, they're disputing what's going on in the, the chapter. There's kind of an ambiguity. Like, here's the problem. Number one, did God literally tell this holy man, this prophet, this man of God to go and marry a prostitute? Did that what, is that what God was doing? Or did God tell him to go marry a woman who would eventually prostitute herself? And so there's been a lot of discussion because no one really knows the answer as to which of these two that God actually did. How many know? It probably is the latter. As a matter of fact, the majority of scholars believe that this marriage started with such bright hope is that no godly prophet would marry such a woman. And what makes the betrayal so painful is that this is a woman who was deeply loved by her husband. And there's probably nothing more painful than love betrayed. Derek Kidner rightly says, it is the people you love who can hurt you the most. How many know that's the truth? One can almost trace the degree of potential pain along a scale from uh, rebuff, which you hardly notice from a stranger, to the rather upsetting clash you may have with a friend, right on to the stinging hurt of a jilting the ache of a parent-child estrangement, or the most wounding of all, the betrayal of a marriage. W.H. Auden writes, Like everything which is not the involuntary result of fleeting emotion, but the creation of time and will, any marriage, happy or unhappy, is infinitely more interesting than any romance, however passionate. Now that's a very powerful statement. If you really unpack that. Now you don't really appreciate that statement, I think, until you've been married for a while. See, when you've been married for a long time, you start realizing that there's, there's ebbs and flows in a relationship. How many know that's true? There's high points and low points, you know? They've actually done studies on marriage. This is really fascinating to me. I like reading all this stuff. You know, I've done studies on marriage. You know the highest point of marital satisfaction is when you're first married. That's the highest point. It'll never get any better than that. Wow. And, and the reason being, let me, let me finish, it may come close to that again, but that's when you're living in a deluded state. <laughs> You've married a fantasy. The girl marries the guy of her dreams, this white charging knight, and over the next number of years, she finds out he falls off his horse he gets his armor almighty. He's not quite the, the white shining knight he, she thought he was. You know? And the guy, that's the way it works. And the guy marries this girl and he just thinks, sweet, gentle, loving, beautiful, amazing person. Then she gets upset with him. I mean, we're talking fantasy, folks. You see, immature love, you know, we are loving the idea of being in love. And then time begins to elapse. And the relationship begins to unfold and experiences begin to happen and problems begin to emerge and values begin to be espoused and shared and things have to be worked through. Now we're dealing with reality. You know what the lowest point of marital satisfaction is when you have teenagers. <laughs> now I have a theory about this. Here's my theory. At that moment in that household, you have two degrees of chemical responses. You have adolescence with all of the hormones kicking in. And I jokingly used to say, when people turn to be middle schoolers, hormones kick in, brains kick out. Sorry, junior hires, but I've dismissed them, so they didn't hear this anyways. No, I'm just teasing. But you know what I mean? Like junior hires, there's a lot of hormones. They're just like, what am I doing? I just got all this new stuff in my body. And then you have mom and dad, and a lot of times you have menopause. I mean, big changes. Chemical stuff starts happening. You got chemicals happening at the same moment on two sides. Can you imagine what's going on? It's called the low point. You got, you know, parents who are, you know, 
trying to somehow release and give responsibility to a child who's still irresponsible but is demanding the full rights of adulthood? You got a lot of tension going on there. It's a low point. You're so busy trying to pay the bills and raise the kids, you don't really have time to build meaningful connectedness with each other. I'm just, that's a low point. Low point. Here's the good news. High point's going to come back. Almost back to when you first were married again because now once all the kids leave the house. Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> then you get to rediscover each other again. It's not all about the kids and all about this needs and that need. So I'm just pointing out to you there's this up and down that begins to happen in your relationships. It's all part of growing and maturing and developing as individuals. But what we're focusing on the text is this estrangement between Hosea and Gomer. It's a human story, but it often fails to grasp is that the story is really the backdrop for a greater story. And we tend to focus on the human story and miss the divine story. Here's the divine story. God is my lover. God is your lover. And we fall in love with him. We say, oh God, that you could forgive me and love me and bring me into this amazing relationship with you. And God is so faithful. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. He's always there. And this, this something inside of us, and I'm going to use a term, I'm going to call it a holy longing. There's an intense longing in our soul. And it's amazing how this longing, we begin to crave. We'll call it a craving. And we begin to pursue things. And pretty soon, we take for granted this loving relationship with the heavenly lover, and we begin to pursue other things. We pursue people, we put people ahead of God, we pursue money ahead of God, pursue career ahead of God, it's pursue you know, what will make us happy ahead of God. And in reality, all we're doing is prostituting ourselves because they're all false lovers. They're false in the sense that they're not gonna meet the longing of our soul, but we pursue them hoping that they're gonna do that. But they never do. They always fall short. And we keep moving on and search because there's this longing in our soul. That longing can only be met by the heavenly lover. He's the only one that can ultimately satisfy the deepest longings and craving of our heart. And that's what God is trying to bring to the attention of Hosea through his own pain, his own rejection. He's feeling this pain and God says, that's what I feel as my people have abandoned me and have sought solace. They've sought help from all these other idols. They have prostituted themselves. Amazing. Let me move on to the second dynamic, which is really the demise of the relationship. How do relationships fall apart? You know, you think about it. I get these beautiful young people. They come to me, say, Pastor, will you do our wedding? You know, there's love in their eyes. This is going to be a forever thing. They're so excited. But I've been at this so long that I know that there's going to be a moment where there's going to be pain in those eyes, there's going to be disappointment going to be frustration. What causes separation between people who loved each other? Obviously, sin enters the picture. When we are unfaithful to that covenant that we made before God, it affects us and affects those around us. When we, as I said, either selfishness, whatever it is, we go after other things. Often we have an immature view of love and marriage. In her startling and insightful essay on marriage written in the 1940s, Catherine Ann Porter bemoaned how romantic love had crept into the marriage bed very steadily by centuries, bringing its absurd notions about love as eternal springtime and marriage as a personal adventure meant to provide personal happiness. Do you know we've got to stop playing this game? Your needs are not going to be met by this person you're getting married to. That's God's job. God, only God can meet that deep longing in your soul. No other person can meet it. 
The reality of the human condition is such that we must salvage our fragments of happiness out of life's inevitable sufferings. What is she saying? She's saying, you know what? We have now created in this culture such an unrealistic expectation of life that we think that we can live life and never suffer. And we think suffering is a strange element that somehow should never be a part of our lives. And yet, the human condition is a story of human suffering. We have never lived in a more affluent in a more blessed condition than we've ever lived in as the condition we're living in right now. And we do not fully understand that. Study human history and you're going to see story after story of war and affliction and suffering and heartache and brokenness. And that's the human story. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that Jesus himself learned what? Obedience by the things which he suffered. And yet we act like suffering is a stranger. And why is suffering a part of the human equation? Because sin is in this world and sin affects all of our lives. And someone else's sin even affects my life in a negative way. Isn't that true? We're affecting each other in so many negative ways. In The Necessary Enemy, Porter explores the heights and depths of marriage, making the following observation. She's picking on the young bride. This is a woman author, so don't throw bricks at the male communicator here. This very contemporary young woman finds herself facing the oldest and ugliest dilemma of marriage. She is dismayed, horrified, full of guilt and forebodings because she's finding out little by little that she's actually capable of hating her husband, whom she has loves faithfully. She can hate him at times as fiercely and as mysteriously, indeed, in terribly much the same way as she often hated her parents, her brothers and sisters whom she loves when she was a child. What, what are we saying here? She's basically saying, we all grew up in a home. We all felt loved to some degree by our parents, but there were moments we disagreed with them. There were tensions in those relationships, and we even had sibling rivalry. Anybody remember those days? And she's basically saying, so what changes? We move to another house, and the thing goes on again. But what's shocking is the expectation is it's going to be different. It's my house. She thought she had outgrown all of this, but here it was again, an element in her own nature she could not control or fear she could not. With only a romantic view of marriage to fall back on, Porter warns a young woman may lose her peace of mind. She is afraid her marriage is going to fail because at times she feels a painful hostility toward her husband and cannot admit its reality because such an admission would damage in her own eyes her view of what love should be. That's a powerful statement, folks. Because you see, we have an understanding in our mind, this is the way it should be. And when it's not the way in our minds it should be, then we're disappointed. I'm trying to explain something. what, What are you saying, Pastor? Well, let me just continue on. Gary Thomas says it this way, and I love this. He says, romantic love has no elasticity to it, It can never be stretched. It simply shatters. I mean, if you're looking for that kind of love, you'll be disappointed somewhere because it'll break. But he says mature love, the kind that demands, that's demanded of a good marriage, must stretch as the sinful human condition is such that all of us bear conflicting emotions. What's he saying? Well, mature love is able to understand that marriage is more than just feelings. It is commitment, respect, forgiveness, and finally deep appreciation for another person unlike ourselves. Is that powerful? I mean, let's just say it this way. I'm going to really help you guys out today. Because I get so many of you coming to see me individually. I want to just say it publicly. You know, Probably the greatest defining moment in your marriage will be when you can say to your, yourself and then say to your spouse with honesty, I love you just the way you are. And I'm not trying to change you. I'm just going to accept you for who you are. That's a very defining moment in a marriage. Just love you for who you are. By the way, doesn't God love us for just who we are? And you know what? Nobody can change that other person. No one can change another person. So if you're trying to do that, stop it. 
All you're doing is sending a message of pure rejection. Okay? Who can you change? You say, well, myself. I don't know. I have a hard time changing myself. I actually need God's help to change me. I find that changing my life is a full-time job. It takes a lot of work and a lot of patience. Right? And you know, true love is learning to love people just for who they are. Accepting them for just who they are. Creating an environment where people are just feel safe in that environment. I'm being loved for who I am. Isn't that kind of how God loves us? And it creates that safety zone. And I'm going to even go further besides the marriage and move into the church family and say, shouldn't we be just loving each other? It's so easy to find fault with each other. You want to find fault with me? I got them. Lots of them. It's easy. We can find them. But to just say, you know what, I'm going to love this person and accept them and value them and encourage them, right? Creates a whole different environment. The three children that the scholars believe were the union of this marriage between Hosea and Gomer were named to communicate the state of relationship between the nation of Israel and their God. The first child was a son whom they named Jezreel. And they says here in verse Chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Now, what is God doing here? He's actually bringing to their attention. You know, Jezreel was a, was a place of great actual positiveness in the history of the nation. It was the place where Gideon won a great victory. It was a place that was covered with glory, but now the name had experienced shame. Jezreel is where Jehu assassinated the house of Ahab at God's command and had Jezebel thrown down from the wall. It was a place of judgment and bloodshed. Jehu was God's avenging servant against the sins of Ahab. However, like others that God used to punish the people's sins, God now addresses the sins of of these who he used to punish others. Jehu's descendants now have reigned to the fourth generation according to God's promise in 2 Kings chapter 10 and verse 30. The Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in accomplishing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab all I had in mind to do, your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel for, the four, for four generations. Here it seems Jehu's doing exactly what God tells him to do, but his obedience is only partial. Let me explain what I mean by that. Because in the very next verse it says, yet Jehu, anytime you get the conjunction, but, yet, right? You already know something's coming. Yet Jehu was not careful to keep the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all of his heart. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, which he had caused Israel to commit. What was the sin? It was the sin of idolatry. Remember Jeroboam set up a new system of worship, put gods in Dan and Beersheba, right? He, he golden calves, created a new priesthood. So here's Hosea prophesying. He's warning the end of this time. Jeroboam, the second, uh, a descendant of Jehu, is living out the same sins as the previous sins, uh, kings of the north. There was unfaithfulness to God. But it was a time of political and economic prosperity. Sometimes we get fooled. Can I just say something? Sometimes we think when everything is going good, God is pleased with us. And when everything is going bad, God's angry with us. And that's a wrong way to estimate our lives. You could be in a time of difficulty and God's pleased with you. You could be a time of great economic prosperity and God's not happy with you. You can't make that assessment. People were living indulgent lives. People were careless. People were affluent. People just didn't really care. They didn't really, you know, honor God. As a matter of fact, affluence abounded. The poor were neglected. While Hosea's prophetic contemporary, Amos, spoke of these issues, Hosea's ministry focused on the root issue, the real issue, which was what? They had wandered after other loves and as a result had forfeited God's grace. You know what's tragic about idolatry? And you know what idolatry is. Anything that you and I put ahead of God is an idol. 
Anything that is more important to you than your relationship to God becomes an idol. And I can tell us where our idols are based on how we spend our resources and our time and our energy. That's what that, You'll find what your idols are just by that. You know what's tragic about idolatry is that it promises a lot and doesn't deliver. You know, that's the sad part. People pour their lives into something. At the end of the day, they're disappointed with their lives because they went for it and got nothing from it. God warns that he would break their bow. The bow was a symbol of military power and authority. By calling this son Jezreel, God was giving a foreshadowing of a great military defeat in this very valley. There's also a play on words, for Jezreel means to be scattered like chaff or seeds. The idea here is expressed in a negative way. It can be used in a positive way, but it's used in a negative way. They will be scattered, exiled, taken captive. And you know the story. Israel, the northern kingdom, was taken into captivity and exile by the Assyrians. The second child was a daughter. That reveals the dire condition that the relationship between God and Israel had finally come to. It says here... uh, Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a, uh, a child, to a, to a daughter, sorry. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lorubhamah, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel, that I should forgive them. That I should at all forgive them. Lorubhamah means no love. King James translated, no mercy, no grace shown. Do you know God is, how many know what the word forbearance means? It means to put up with. God put up with the sins of his people for hundreds of years, but then he said, I'm done with it now. We're coming to the end of this. We're going to break it off. The northern kingdom had never worshipped God. Did you know that from the time they were conceived, when they split off, they continually worshipped God. Wrongly, They abandoned Yahweh. 200 years. Hosea is the final voice warning of what's about to happen. What we need to understand is that if they had repented, God would have restored them and blessed them, but they had resisted. Oh, okay. I'm ahead of myself here. Sorry. The tragedy is not that God so much uh, punishes us, but that the very nature of our sin has evil consequences that literally diminish and destroy us. You know, basically, all God has to do for us is just let sin have its consequences in our lives. That's all he's got to do. We have a chance during all that time to repent, but he can just let those consequences just continue on. You know, in the 19th century, Marie Agut left her children to follow after the most famous pianist of her day, the Hungarian composer Franz Litz. After the ardor of her infatuation cooled and the reality of missing her children set in because she abandoned her family to go after this guy, Marie was said to have made this observation. When one has smashed everything around oneself, one has also smashed oneself. In other words, what is she saying? I destroyed myself. We can see a contrast of God's dealing with Israel and Judah. Verse 7, it says, Yet I will show love to the house of Judah. That's the southern tribes. I will save them not by bow, sword, or battle, but by, not by horse or horseman, but by the Lord their God. Now, do you know what was going on at that time politically? Assyria was a world empire. They conquered all the surrounding nations. They took over the nation of Israel. They took over 90% of Judah. But when they came up to Jerusalem, at this point now, there's a king by the name of Hezekiah. He's reigning there. He's trusting in God. So what does God do? Hezekiah cries out to God for mercy. And then we read this very interesting story in 2 Kings 9.35. It says, That night an angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. And when the people got up the next morning, it says there were all the dead bodies. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. Now, what happened? Well, you know, we could, we, could, we could surmise. I mean, 
They could have had a plague sweep the camp. Who, who created that? Who allowed that? God did. In other words, God at that precise moment destroyed that army. The final child was another boy that they named Lo-Ami. Here he comes to the end of the relationship between God and Israel. Divorced. No longer God's people. Look at verse 8. After she had weaned Lurami, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. David Hubbard says, The waywardness of the nation has effectively annulled the covenant. God who upheld his end, but the nation had abandoned God. We're not just talking a year or two. We're talking over 200 years. They chose to end it. You know, one of the tragedies about marriage, and this was the hardest part for me as a pastor, you know it takes two people to make a marriage work. How many know that's true? Even if one person wants it to work and the other doesn't, it won't work. It takes two people that are committed to making it work. That's the reality. Let me move on to the final dynamic that reveals the nature of God, and it's the depths of the relationship. Here we find a summary of events of jolted, betrayed love. God had never stopped loving. God even brought back some of the people that were part of the nation of Israel. Because when they took these nations, they took people into exile. They usually took the leadership. They left most of the poor people behind. They weren't worth exiling. And so that's exactly what happened. And so now, under the reign of King Hezekiah, remember if you read that beautiful story, he decided to have a Passover, and then he sends out people to go up to the northern tribes. And we read this in Second Chronicles, and the king commanded couriers, and they went throughout the land of Israel and Judah with letters from the king and from his officials, which read, People of Israel... Return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may return to you who are left and who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. And you, you think after all of this damage in their lives, that they would, you know, people are just going, right on, we're going to do this. And look what the next verse says. The couriers went from town to town in Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun, but the people scorned and ridiculed them. You know, I think sometimes we think, you know, if we have economic disaster, if we have war in our land, that people will just turn to God. But you know what I've learned? One thing about crisis. Crisis only reveals the condition of the human heart. And if you have a heart, a, a hardened heart, an angry heart, an unforgiving heart, a disconnected heart from God, all it does is harden your position. That's all it does. That's all crisis does. But then there are those in the midst of this crisis, and then it says, nevertheless, some men of Asher, Manasseh, and Zembelin did what? They humbled themselves and went to Jerusalem. Wow. They actually responded to God's call for repentance. And so that's why God keeps doing it. He keeps calling and calling and calling. And he's calling to our world, and it's out of a heart of love. God's warning ends with hope. Though our sins are a betrayal of love, we have actually violated God's love to us. When we sin, that's what we're actually doing. We're violating God's love to us. Our sin is always a violation of love. I don't think we think of it that way. But every sin that we commit is always a violation of love. The Apostle Peter now takes these very words from the book of Hosea. A little later on, he's going to say, these people are now my people. He's going to turn this message around. He takes the very words to say, we who were once not God's people are now his people. We who once had not been loved are now being shown mercy and grace. Why does God allow evil? Remember I started that question? He doesn't take our will away from us. Evil is the result of a sinful will. And God doesn't remove your will. How an all-powerful God addresses evil is to bear the punishment upon himself. What Hosea shouts to us is that the only way to overcome evil is through costly love. Reconciliation can only happen 
when repentance, a change of mind and action occurs. God can restore our broken lives, our wayward lives, if we come to him in repentance. And we can be assured that his love is unfailing. No matter how unfaithful we have been, we can be in the slave market called sin. And God says to Hosea, go back to that slave market and buy your wife back. Because really what he was showing Hosea is that's the heart of God. God is willing to restore us. And you know what? He'll continue to call out to us. God will restore us. He'll redeem us. He'll love us again. That's how we discover the heart of God. Hosea, through his human experience, had an epiphany of how amazing God's love and to the depths of God's love. As a matter of fact, Paul, writing to the Ephesians, you know what he said? He prayed for the church at Ephesus that they would know what? The love of God. It takes a revelation to know the depth, the height, you know, the width. I don't think people can fully comprehend it. I don't think I have fully grasped it. I don't think any human being has fully grasped the depths of God's love towards us. What an amazing thing. Even though you and I have gone after other lovers, if we will turn our hearts back to God, God says, I will love you, restore you, and bring you into intimacy with me. Let's stand. I can't think of a, a more powerful element, you know, because I think we can learn something as to the nature of God, but also as to the nature of humanity. Isn't that true? You know, my prayer today was two things. One, that we would get a, a, a better understanding of marriage. Does that, that make sense? That we'd get a little bit of an understanding of how we need to love each other who are sinners. You know, we're married to each other. We're, we're sinners married to a sinner. We've got to get that in our mind. You go, well, yeah, but pastor, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm a saint. Yeah, it's good. You know, I know you're a saint. And I know we're, we're supposed to be saintly. But unfortunately, we're not always saintly. We have moments in our relationship where we're less than saintly. Isn't that true? But really, isn't it a picture of God's relationship to us? Isn't that what Hosea is really teaching us? And God is trying to reveal his heart. I'm sure Hosea is going, really, God, you want me to do this? Uh, yeah, I want you to do that. Actually, God commands us to love. Hello? God commands us to love. God commands us to forgive. How many know that that's true? To the degree I forgive, I receive forgiveness. I, how many? Yeah. Re, say the Lord's Prayer again and you'll, you'll see it. Forgive us our sins as we forgive. To the degree I'm willing to forgive is the degree I'm willing to receive forgiveness. I don't know about you, but I need forgiveness. Therefore, I need to forgive. I'm commanded to forgive. I'm commanded to love. I'm commanded to love God. I'm commanded to love my wife. How I many that's interesting? Husbands, love your wives. Yeah, but I don't feel like loving you right now. I don't care what you feel like. You're commanded to do this. Yeah, but right now she's acting like an enemy says, love your enemies. <laughs> I can't get out of this one, God. That's right. You can't. How many are getting the picture? You seeing it? Oh, but they don't deserve to be forgiven. Well, if, if it comes down to deserving, I don't deserve to be forgiven. Amen? Okay, don't play that game with God. It ain't going to work. So every head bowed this morning. How many here say, you know what? I realize God's speaking to me this morning. I've got to forgive 
another person. Right now, raise your hand. I've got to forgive. Just raise your hand. We're going to pray with you. How many say, I've got to love a person that I don't like right now? Raise your hand. Oh, yeah. Lots of hands are still up. How many here say, I need God's grace in my life? I got both hands up. I got both of my hands up. I need God's grace. I need God's love in my life. So, Lord, if I need this so desperately, so does everyone around me. Lord, make us channels of your love. That's my prayer for you today. Let's just raise our hands to God and say, God, make us a channel of your love and grace and forgiveness. Wow, that's, that's powerful. Let, let's let God flow through our lives. Our human experiences, we get to practice this stuff. You know, it's easy to love someone who's lovable. It's a lot harder to love someone who's unlovable, right? Aren't there people out there that are unlovable? They're just hard to love. They're kind of miserable. They're nasty little creatures, right? And God's saying, I want you to love them. I want you to forgive them. God, I'd like to wring their necks, right? That's what we're thinking. They don't deserve this, God. God says, yeah, I know, but you don't either. Right? Okay. So, Lord, we open our hearts to you, the author of love, and we pray the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for the power of your Spirit to flow into our lives so that we can love and forgive even as you love and forgive us. Make us a channel of your love. Make us a channel of your peace and of your grace. So fill our bankrupt souls, O God, with your divine presence that we can overcome evil by doing good, by showing grace, by loving instead of retaliating. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.